If you read the story we posted about the exoneration of Robert Dubois after 37 years in prison, you understand how important it can be to find and test long-forgotten evidence. Dubois and Oscar had a lot in common. Their cases both involved faulty witness testimony and junk science. They were both sent to death row but had their sentences commuted to life. They had each exhausted all of their appeals without success. The two men even shared the same legal team, the Innocence Project. However, there were two insurmountable differences between the cases. The most critical physical evidence in Dubois's case was still in storage, and he received a good-faith conviction integrity review from a new prosecutor who has dedicated himself to making sure that each past conviction was truly sound. State Attorney Warren set up a real review unit, and his team actually evaluates all of the case evidence for factual innocence. That is a far cry from the sham cover-up that Oscar received from Tulare D.A. Ward and A.D.A. Alavezos. We've talked a lot about TCSO Byrd and Johnson destroying the evidence in early 1977, but we've only touched on the question of who else knew about that highly illegal act and actively covered it up. Obviously, since there was a state law and a court order in place to preserve all of the case evidence, as soon as any Tulare DA knew of the destruction, he was duty-bound to report it to the court and to Oscar's defense attorneys. We know you're crying with laughter at the thought of that ever happening. That would require integrity, respect for the rule of law, and adherence to the oaths of attorney and prosecutor. You also know how this story ends, so obviously that never happened. D.A. Powell did not make it through the primary for re-election in June of 1978. And that fall, Will Richmond, no relation to Donna, was elected to Larry D.A. He left that position in June of 1987 to become a federal prosecutor in Fresno. Starting in about 1981, Ron Cuillard became one of Richmond's chief criminal prosecutors. And in 1985, he became the assistant district attorney. At that time, ADA Cuillard knew about the destruction of evidence in Donna's homicide, and instead of informing the court and Oscar's attorneys, he took steps to cover it up. Not only did he get away with that, he was appointed to an empty judicial post and sat on the bench until 2007. Let's be clear. Nobody has ever had to answer in any way for the intentional destruction of the physical evidence. As we've covered before, in 2001, Morton's lab was ordered by the court to turn over everything they had in the case to Oscar's defense. In those papers was a letter from Morton to ADA Coolyard, and attached was a copy of the evidence receipts with Morton's handwritten notes on the lab's findings for each item. There was never any overreaching lab report prepared in the case, just a hodgepodge of lab bench notes, jotted findings on the receipts, and the testimony at trial. However, in 1985, Coolyard was trying to defend against Oscar's appeal, and he was worried. How do we know that? Because of another piece of paper, notes of a phone conversation that prompted Morton's letter to Coolyard. The call was from Coolyard to Morton, and the notes are written in Morton's handwriting. So he took the call personally. They say, quote, Brian Johnson destroyed pubic hair. So... In July 1985, we know that D.A. Will Richmond, A.D.A. Ron Couillard, and Charles Morton knew that the evidence had been destroyed. 
That information is incredibly specific, and it indicates that Cuillard had seen TCSO Johnson's report of April 9, 1977, and knew that Bob Byrd had ordered the destruction. There is absolutely no doubt about what ADA Coolyard should have done the minute he obtained that report or information. He was required to inform Oscar's attorneys and make a motion to the court for a hearing on the circumstances of the evidence destruction. Why a hearing? Because the case law on that situation was clear. How and why the evidence was destroyed controlled whether or not the prosecution could continue to rely on it to defend the conviction. Here is what is so indefensible about this case. No court in California has ever even contemplated the intentional destruction of all of the evidence in a criminal case by the police. It was, and is, 100% illegal. And it has always been incomprehensible that any investigator or forensics officer would do it. Instead, the case law addressed the accidental destruction, or the failure to follow rigorous and systematic procedures to preserve the evidence. The fact that ADA Cuillard discovered this information and actively covered it up should be its own hour-long episode of Dateline or 2020. Instead, it's just the two of us shouting into the wind. Putting aside the catastrophic impact the destruction had on Oscar's case, this has much wider implications for 50 years of criminal convictions in Tulare County. Why? Because not one single case involving TCSO, Byrd, Johnson, or Lovett can be trusted. They are criminals, and it's all documented in black and white. It should be obvious that committing a crime directly related to case evidence means that nothing you say in a report or on the witness stand can ever be trusted. Imagine Birder Johnson getting up on the stand in a case and the defense attorney asking him, Did you order the destruction of evidence in a criminal case? Yes. Was that in violation of California law and a valid court order in effect at the time? Yes. Would you trust anything that came out of his mouth? We wouldn't, and we know a lot of jurors would see it the same way. ADA Couillard knew for certain that these officers had committed at least one crime, and that Johnson was still a TCSO forensics officer. He didn't have him quietly fired or even disciplined. Johnson and Byrd are getting their full retirement benefits. Couillard not only covered for them, but he continued to present their cases to juries and judges, undoubtedly citing their honesty and professional credentials as the reason to believe them over regular citizens who disputed their testimony. Criminals. They weren't trustworthy. They were criminals. ADA Cuillard broke his oath of office for criminals, not good police officers who made an innocent mistake. No, men who knowingly and intentionally committed a criminal act. Here's a question for ADA Cuillard. Didn't you wonder why Bob Byrd wanted the evidence destroyed? It must have been pretty obvious that if Byrd really believed that Oscar was guilty, there would be no reason to worry that something in the evidence could undermine the conviction. This should have been a running around, screaming, hair-on-fire moment in the DA's office. There would have been no doubt that Byrd was trying to hide something important and critical, and that meant that a brutal killer was still walking free. Were VPD correct? Did the Snelling killer move to Sacramento in the summer of 1976? 
Did Bird think or know that it was the same man? These questions aren't just obvious in hindsight. They were front-page news stories in Visalia and Sacramento. Regular citizens with no inside knowledge were able to put this together well before 1985. Bird began working in law enforcement in the county in 1964. How many false reports did he file in his 20 years on the job? How many lies did he tell on the witness stand? How many false arrests did he make? How many innocent men and women did he send to jail or prison? ADA Cuillard didn't want to ask those questions in 1985, and D.A. Ward refuses to ask them now. What about Brian Johnson? Did he routinely destroy evidence in homicide cases? Are there men in prison who cannot prove their innocence because the evidence in their case is gone? The actions of just these two officers implicates hundreds of criminal cases and should justify a full DOJ investigation into due process and civil rights violations. We're not overstating this. It's shocking and unacceptable that these questions remain unanswered. However, if we were Ron Coolyard, here's the part that would make us really sick. As attorneys, we all know that the law says that a DA may not rely on or present forensic reports if the underlying evidence was intentionally destroyed by law enforcement. That's just a fact, and it's been case law in California since 1974. All test results and testimony about those results must be suppressed if the evidence is no longer available for testing and impeachment. Failure to suppress that evidence and presenting it to the court or a jury is a constitutional due process violation, period. This is not a gray area. Yet, here we are, looking at Coolyard admitting that the evidence was gone and asking Morton for a forensics report on the testing of that same evidence. We feel like we're watching him put the Constitution right in a shredder. Back to what should have happened when Couillard found out about the evidence destruction. His best option would have been to try to weave through the wording of the law to show that the destruction was not intentional or even negligent on the part of TCSO, but somehow an unavoidable accident. However, looking at the documentation, there was no way that was going to work. Both Lovett and Johnson went out of their way to try to cover themselves and clearly stated in writing that Byrd had specifically directed them to destroy the evidence. There would have been no winning for Couillard at a hearing. The judge would have been forced to find that all further mention of the evidence, its testing, and the testimony about it at trial must be suppressed. That would have meant that Couillard could no longer rely on it or even mention it when defending Oscar's conviction on appeal. To be super clear here, since February 1977, Every single time any Tulare DA or TCSO officer has mentioned a piece of the destroyed evidence to defend Oscar's conviction in court or at a parole hearing, they have committed a due process violation. That was unconstitutional. Well, you're thinking, how could the DA prove to the appeals court or the attorney general that there was plenty of solid evidence to support Oscar's conviction if they aren't allowed to mention the invoice book, tires from Oscar's truck, or his cowboy boots? the only evidence that supposedly put him at the scenes. How about if they're barred from mentioning Blake's testing on the pubic hair and his testimony at trial? They would never be able to support their case. 
and that's fair. They destroyed the evidence. They knew it was illegal. And under our Constitution, the consequence for that action is suppression of the evidence. That may sound harsh, but the reasoning is sound. Was the killer's DNA on the invoice book? What about the jotter notepad or carbon paper? Would modern computer analysis easily prove that the boots and tires didn't match the scenes? Was there really human semen on Donna's pubic hair? Was the killer's DNA in that sample, the scrapings from under Donna's fingernails, or in any of her clothing, shoes, or jewelry? What about the vaginal fluid slides taken at autopsy that TCSO Johnson destroyed? Did he throw away the killer's DNA? Surely, the ski mask found at Neil Ranch had skin cell, nasal, and saliva DNA inside. Was there DNA or other evidence on Donna's bike or on the bottles and cans found nearby? Would modern analysis of the white paint on Donna's bike give us the manufacturer's name and likely vehicle? Who left unidentified latent fingerprints on the passenger wing window and the glove box of Oscar's truck? Due process under the law means that the rules work both ways. Each side has equal access to the evidence until one year after the defendant's release from prison or death. Sure, all of us can understand why Couillard didn't take the right, moral, or legal action. Oscar would have walked free. Instead, he chose the easy path and continued to present inadmissible evidence to the court to support the conviction. This win-at-all-costs-ends-justify-the-means behavior defines the Tulare DA's office. We wonder if they make everyone take a secret secondary oath just to make sure this rule is followed. It's all about getting and maintaining convictions, like a game scorecard. Never let the truth, facts, new information, alibis, or contradictory evidence get in the way of winning. It's difficult to count all the court filings and hearings in Oscar's case between 1993 and 2003. Over and over and over, he and his defense team requested the evidence for DNA testing, and the DA's office just stalled and then lied and then pretended that they had absolutely no idea why they couldn't find it. Where was Ron Couillard during those years? Sitting on the bench, handing down rulings, and sending people to prison. Did he say one single word to the Innocence Project? No, not one. It's hard to do the right thing when it's unpopular, or there could be severe consequences. But that's the true test of a person's integrity. If you can only tell the truth when it's painless and uncontroversial, can you really claim to be an honest man? Not in our book. So... How many criminal cases should be investigated due to credibility issues with TCSO or members of the Tulare DA's office? If they would intentionally destroy evidence in their custody, lie about it, cover it up, or continue to present it when it should be suppressed, how can any of their casework be trusted? It can't. Are we supposed to guess when they're being honest and when they're lying to the court? No, that's not how law enforcement, attorney, or prosecutor oaths of office work. We swear to uphold the law 100% of the time. Real justice lets the truth speak for itself, no matter the outcome. How many cases did Byrd, Johnson, and Lovett work in their combined 80 years in law enforcement? What about D.A. Powell, D.A. Richmond, and A.D.A. Coolyard? 
How many others in the DA's office hid the truth and presented disallowed evidence to the courts in Oscar's appeals? Ten? Twenty? The scope of this exceeds anything we can possibly imagine. We're talking about the need for a DOJ investigation into systemic rot within TCSO and the DA's office. While we're here, let's go ahead and add an investigation of Exeter PD. On the day they announced D'Angelo's arrest, Exeter PD issued a statement saying that they had no proof that he ever worked there and tried to cast doubt on the basic fact of his three years of employment. The press release from Sacramento also forgot to mention it, although it was admitted in an answer to a press question. We'd already posted several Exeter Sun articles, and Farrell Ward immediately gave interviews disputing the department's obvious lies. Since then, several press outlets have tried to get D'Angelo's police reports and employment records. Exeter PD has rebuffed them all, saying that they were destroyed and never preserved to microfilm. Auburn PD said the exact same thing, and we all know that they lied about it for two years. They have all of his reports. Did D'Angelo commit crimes under color of law? Undoubtedly. That doesn't mean he was on duty, just that he used his position to commit his crimes. That could be abusing his authority, like using police resources to run a victim's license plate or obtain an unlisted phone number or address. It could be using his police issue radio or information bulletins to monitor police activities or stakeouts. This would also include identifying himself as a police officer if he were stopped or questioned about his activities in a crime scene area. What about Farrell Ward's story about D'Angelo showing up to help in the suspect's search after the Snelling homicide? Yes, he was avoiding detection and using his position to obtain inside information about the investigation. Obviously, color of law would also include more direct actions like using his badge, uniform, car, gun, and title to commit his crimes. Did he tell Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond that they were in trouble and that he was going to take them to their parents or to the police station? We believe that he did. We think the same thing likely happened to Kimberly Best, Paige Sinclair, Linda Kukendall, and Christine Riley. Victor Hayes believes that D'Angelo drove his police car to the scene and was wearing uniform pants during his attack. What about D'Angelo's late-night visit to Gary Bardoni? He entered the house using his badge and authority, yet we know that there was no legitimate ongoing Exeter PD investigation into the burglary. Should we look back in Sacramento during his internship with Roseville PD? Did those credentials facilitate the ransackings and cat burglaries in 1972 and 73? It would be easy to figure out if D'Angelo committed crimes while on duty in Exeter or Auburn, but we believe there is zero chance of that information ever coming out. Obviously, the financial liability for failure to supervise would be huge. There should also be a full investigation into exactly what happened within Sacramento Sheriff and Auburn PD after D'Angelo's arrest in 1979. Were Exeter PD and the Tulare DA notified? We know that VPD were not. Did Sacramento sheriffs really miss the fact that they arrested a police officer from the Visalia area who moved to Auburn right when the EAR attacks started and was arrested in the heart of the EAR burglary and rape zone? 
Where are the sheriff and DA files on D'Angelo's case? Auburn PD were preparing to defend D'Angelo's firing at a hearing. What had they learned about his past? This was a year after the VR-EAR feud stories were on the front page of both Sunday papers in Sacramento. Their best defense is that they were terrible investigators. Seriously so bad that they couldn't even follow all-caps screaming headlines leading directly to the suspect. Worst case, they actually knew or suspected and decided to look the other way. As Victor Hayes asked at sentencing, if they have nothing to hide, where is the public transparency and the independent investigation? It's non-existent. Back to Ron Coolyard. We're not quite done with him here. There is another important bit of information on Morton's phone notes. It says, MG identification indicative of type A. May have DA Coolyard contact and request copy of report of MG on blood grouping. MG stands for Mike Grubb, who worked in Morton's lab in 1976 and did the ABO typing on the sample that Blake claimed contained the semen of Donna's killer. There are a couple of things that stand out in those notes. One is, ADA Coolyard was aware, either before or during that conversation, that Grubb had typed Blake's sample as A, not Oscar's O. That was material exculpatory evidence because it either pointed away from the presence of semen or towards a different suspect with type A blood. If there was no semen, the conviction had to be overturned because that was the sole basis for the attempted rape conviction and the only possible motive for Oscar to kill Donna. If there was semen, and it was type A, Oscar was conclusively excluded. He could not have been the killer. The second issue pertains to the bottom note. Couillard was specifically asking Morton not to include Grubb's report on the ABO testing at that time. In fact, no report existed, just Grubb's bench notes on the lab work. You can see from Morton's letter in the attached documents that Grubb, and the ABO testing were not mentioned or included. Apparently, Couillard did not want Morton to send him documentation of that exculpatory evidence, and Morton complied. All of this is mind-numbing to us. Here is an ADA hiding exculpatory evidence and blatantly using inadmissible reports on destroyed evidence. If Couillard did the exact same thing today, it would be a violation of California Penal Code 141C, a felony. Back in 1985, it was a violation of the rules of professional responsibility and the Constitution, but there was no criminal penalty for prosecutors who did it. It's pretty obvious why this crime was added in 2017. Trusting prosecutors to be honest hasn't worked out well for many defendants. We would love to think that this was just one case, with particularly high stakes, and Ron Cuillard let himself get caught up in an ongoing cover-up not of his making. We might believe that if we hadn't read the 2007 court opinion that overturned the conviction of Mark Soderston in the killing of Julie Wilson. Normally, once a defendant has died, as Soderston had, the appeal is moot and the court won't issue a ruling. However, the appeals court was so outraged by the behavior of the Tulare DA's office and members of Azalea PD that it overturned Soderston's conviction just to send a message that their gross misconduct was illegal and unconstitutional. 
On November 1, 1984, Julie Wilson was killed in her apartment in Visalia. She was stabbed 20 times, her jaw was broken, and she was set on fire on the floor of her living room. A frying pan from the kitchen was found resting on her stomach, and four empty beer cans had been placed between her legs. It appeared that she had been naked from the waist down when the fire started, but there was no evidence of rape. The fire had not moved from Julie's body, and her four-year-old daughter and three-year-old son were found covered in soot but unharmed. When the police asked the four-year-old girl what happened, she said that Mark had put fire on her mother. She stated that it was her brother's father, Mark Dare. She identified Dare from photos on November 2nd and 3rd, and on the 5th, she picked him out of a photo lineup. She said that she saw him fighting with her mother, and that he hit her with the frying pan, set her on fire, and put out the fire before it spread. Vasilia Petey quickly arrested Dare. Petey claimed to have an alibi, provided by his parents. Processing of the beer cans turned up the fingerprint of a neighbor, Lester Williams. And VPD charged him with murder and brought him in for questioning. He denied any knowledge of the crime, and since he was black, he didn't make any sense with the daughter's eyewitness identification. She was clear that she had only seen one man in the apartment, and he was not black. However, ADA Cuillard had an answer for that. He decided that the girl had been confused and that she really meant a friend of Williams, Mark Soderston. VPD interviewed Williams for hours, turning the tape off and on for a total of 18 missing minutes. The appeals court determined that Williams was improperly threatened. Either implicate Mark Soderston in the murder, or they would use the fingerprint to prosecute him for first-degree murder during an attempted rape and seek the death penalty. Williams made up a story that did not match the evidence or the daughter's account, but they went ahead and placed him alone in a police van with Soderston and taped their conversation. Rather than recording a confession... They captured Soderston confronting Williams about his lies, and Williams admitting that he had been forced to make up the story to avoid false charges against himself. Williams apologized and claimed that he had told ADA Couillard that he had lied and made up the story, but Couillard told him that if he recanted, he would be prosecuted instead. ADA Couillard then brought in Julie's daughter and repeatedly showed her photos of Mark Dare and Mark Soderston in an attempt to get her to switch the bad Mark, who killed her mom, from Dare to Soderston. The girl's father was present and complained that Cuillard confused the girl and made it clear to her that he wanted her to identify Soderston. In addition, by showing her the photos of Soderston, Cuillard fatally tainted her identification. Of course Soderston would look familiar to her after that. At trial, the entire case against Soderston was two eyewitnesses, the young daughter and Williams. The daughter had clearly identified Mark Dare, and Williams told Couillard that he was pressured to lie to save himself. Soderston offered family members and a friend who said that he was at home at the time of the murder, and the defense presented witnesses that shredded Dare's alibi. The jury found Soderston guilty, but spared him the death penalty. It hardly mattered. He died in prison in 2006, at age 48. The first question here is why didn't ADA Cuillard prosecute Mark Dare instead of Mark Soderston? He was identified by name and relationship by Julie's daughter, and he had a clear motive since Julie had ended their relationship and kicked him out of the house shortly before she was killed. 
the obvious answer is terrible police work. After Dare was arrested, his parents provided him an alibi, and VPD took it at face value. Then, in a rush to solve the case and make an arrest, they announced that they had charged Williams and Soderston and publicized that Williams had implicated Soderston as the killer. When new witnesses came forward and challenged Dare's alibi and Williams recanted his statement, ADA Cuillard should have immediately dropped the charges against Soderston. But he didn't. Instead, he turned his efforts to getting Julie's daughter to change her identification of Dare and then threatened Williams. It was a disaster entirely of Cuillard's own making. How could he ever try to prosecute Dare when he had announced that someone else had done it? Williams had a signed immunity deal, but his fingerprint was at the scene. Imagine Mark Dare on trial. He could just point at Williams, and at least one juror would have had reasonable doubt. The two VPD officers that threatened Williams, Gomes and Woods, were the lead investigators on the Snelling VR case at that time. They repeatedly lied to the court about the existence of the interview tape and the threats that led to the forced statement. We've been told by people with direct knowledge that Soderston was the number one VR suspect in the minds of Gomes and Woods, and that may have contributed to their illegal behavior towards Soderston in Julie's homicide. The appeals court found misconduct by the case prosecutor, Philip Klein, and DA investigator, John Johnson. They had taken Julie's daughter to court prior to trial twice a week for three weeks, coached her testimony, and then withheld the tapes of those sessions from the defense. The tapes showed a young child with no ability to identify Soderston and still making statements implicating Dare. Not only should Klein have known that it was wrong to coach her and reported her lack of recall, he should have turned over the tapes to the defense, but he didn't. The appeals court was livid. They also found that ADA Cuillard had known about the recording of Soderston and Williams in the van and had not given that exculpatory evidence to the defense. Also, he had tainted the daughter's identification of Soderston. Additionally, the appeals court determined that physical evidence that implicated Dare was ignored. Blood was found on Dare's knife and a part of a backpack strap that matched his was found on Julie's body. The father of Julie's daughter testified that he witnessed Dare abuse and threatened to stab Julie shortly before the homicide. We want to read some of what the appeals court had to say when it overturned Soderston's conviction. A man spent 20 years behind bars and, but for his untimely demise, would be there still. He may or may not have committed the crimes for which he was imprisoned, but, as we shall explain, he most certainly did not receive a fair trial. He was denied this right most fundamental to our justice system, not by the good faith, unintentional, and unblameworthy mistake of a witness, but because those whose duty it was to see justice done, neglected, or ignored that duty. This strikes at the very integrity of our system and is an issue of such far-reaching public concern the petitioner's death cannot be allowed to render it beyond our reach. Accordingly, we deny respondents' motion to dismiss and choose to address the issue of broad public interest, i.e. non-disclosure of the four tape recordings. 
In doing so, we emphasize that our primary concern is not an individual named Mark Colin Soderston. If it were, his death would be the end of this case, because we can do nothing for him personally, although we recognize his family's interest in clearing his name. He is dead, and any action on our part comes far too late to benefit him. Our concern, rather, is the integrity of our judicial system. That system was devised by and is dependent upon human beings. Hence, we understand and accept that it is not perfect. Mistakes occur. This is a price we, as society, accept as being an unavoidable corollary of the type of system we have. Honest mistakes do not undermine the integrity of the system. For instance, when the wrong person is convicted because an eyewitness makes a good faith, albeit incorrect, identification of him or her as the perpetrator, the system has failed, but its fundamental integrity has not been compromised. The same result obtains when 12 people conclude the prosecution has not proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt, and a guilty person goes free. Here, however, the system failed for a reason that is, that must be, unacceptable. Its integrity was compromised not by innocent human error, but by the conduct of the very people who are sworn to uphold the system, and who are charged with seeing that justice is done. There is a difference between a miscarriage of justice and a subversion of the justice system. What happened in petitioner's case compromises the core of that system, and because we must take whatever steps we can to guard against a recurrence in someone else's case, this matter did not become moot simply because of the fortuitous fact that petitioner did not live to see the wrong righted. We acknowledge the effect our decision will have on real people in the real world, Nevertheless, while the finality of judgments is an important concept, it cannot be permitted to override the necessity that a final judgment be reliable. We do not know whether Petitioner killed Julie Wilson. Under our judicial system, it is not we, but the jury, who must be convinced of guilt. Where the system works as it is meant to, we defer to the jury's judgment. However, Petitioner has since demonstrated that, in his case, the system failed in a way that has now completely undermined our confidence in the verdict, making such deference no longer proper or appropriate. We defer to the jury's judgment when that judgment is obtained fairly under the rules of our criminal justice system. We do not know what the jury would have done had the undisclosed information been presented to it. What we do know is that because the information was not disclosed to the defense, petitioner did not receive a fair trial. Accordingly, while we recognize that deciding this case on the merits is highly unusual in light of petitioner's death, we find it to be the only suitable course of action on the extraordinary circumstances now before us. There was no reason trial counsel should have suspected these tapes existed, especially since, at trial, Detective Woods, who was the primary investigating officer and who, along with Sergeant Gomes, interviewed Williams on December 1, 1984, consistently testified and represented to the court and counsel outside of the jury's presence that the only tape-recorded interviews with Williams were Officer Salazar's interview of November 27, 1984, and the interviews conducted on November 28, 1984 by Woods, Salazar, and Gomes. This testimony was factually incorrect. Moreover, the notion that the tapes of November 27 and 28, 1984 were the only ones in existence was confirmed by Officer Salazar, who testified at trial that 
To his knowledge, there were no other tapes of Lester Williams. Given the fact that it was during the December 1 interview that officers went beyond threatening to charge Williams with murder to threatening him with the death penalty, the type of tactics this court previously has condemned as coercive, the lapse raises extremely serious issues. The failure to disclose evidence of improper and coercive interrogation of a witness preceding a statement that is beneficial to the prosecution engenders significant questions about the credibility of the beneficial statement. A well-trained police officer would be expected to know that such conduct would be detrimental to the prosecution's case. There is no question that law enforcement and prosecutorial authorities would be fully aware of the impact a taped admission of lying about the defendant's culpability would have. Thus, we have grave concerns about why the improper interrogation, as well as the existence of a tape of the interrogation and the admission of lying, was not acknowledged in sworn testimony. Although we do not rest our decision in this case on a finding of perjury, we cannot help but note that deliberate falsity involves a corruption of the truth-seeking function of the trial process. As our state Supreme Court has observed, perjury by law enforcement officials is particularly pernicious. Our entire criminal justice system is built around the belief and necessity that law enforcement officers will testify truthfully. Deliberate, cynical perjury by law enforcement officials strikes at the very core of our system of law. It manipulates and thereby perverts the entire judicial process. There are three components of a true Brady violation. The evidence at issue must be favorable to the accused, either because it is exculpatory or because it is impeaching. That evidence must have been suppressed by the state, either willfully or inadvertently, and prejudice must have ensued. Evidence is favorable if it either helps the defendant or hurts the prosecution, as by impeaching one of its witnesses. Suppression of the tapes deprived petitioner's trial counsel of several opportunities to attack the credibility of two very important prosecution witnesses. Our independent review of the record leads us to conclude that such an attack likely would have been devastating to the prosecution's case. As we previously have noted, there was no physical evidence that directly linked Petitioner to Julie Wilson's murder. Instead, the prosecution's case depended almost entirely on the testimony of eyewitnesses, most notably Julie's daughter and Lester Williams. Simply put, their testimony was the heart of the prosecution's case. Any evidence that would have had a significantly negative effect on how the jury evaluated their testimony, therefore, necessarily would have substantially undercut the case against Petitioner. In the daughter's case, the existence of tapes that disclosed uncertainty in the identification and raised questions about influencing the identification with respect to the photographs would have had the potential of seriously undermining the veracity of the photographic identification she made in court. Her testimony at trial gave the impression that she was very clear on who the different marks were and with respect to which one killed her mother. Her identification of Petitioner's photograph came across as being very solid, so much so that jurors could have easily dismissed her earlier identifications of Mark Dare as being the result of confusion caused by the trauma of seeing her mother killed. In short, she presented as a very good witness for a child her age. On the tapes, however, her differentiation between the two marks was nowhere near as definite as in her trial testimony, and a jury would reasonably have been troubled. Moreover, 
The tape showed a rehearsal of the daughter's identification of petitioner's photograph. Jurors hearing those tapes reasonably would have wondered whether Julie's daughter, in her trial testimony, was identifying the photograph of the man who actually killed her mother or the photograph she had been conditioned by the interviews to choose. Our review of the record in this case raises fundamental questions about the process used to convict Mark Soderston. The trier of fact was asked to make a determination of guilt based on evidence that was incomplete because of the state's failure to disclose exculpatory evidence. This is not simple error in which the balance of the evidence can be evaluated and found to support no other reasonable conclusion but that reached by the jury. The foreclosed evidence in this case strikes directly at the issue of guilt or innocence. This is also not a case where the evidence of guilt is such that, while the issue of a fair trial is called into question, the issue of factual innocence is not. Moreover, the prosecution here asked for the penalty of death. This case raises the one issue that is the most feared aspect of our system, that an innocent man might be convicted. While that consequence unfortunately does occur in the most protective justice system ever devised by man, it cannot be allowed to occur as a result of a dereliction of their duty by law enforcement and prosecutorial authorities sworn to protect that system. And it should not be cloaked in silence if scrutiny by the justice system is to stand as a reminder of that duty. We do not know and need not determine whether Petitioner killed Julie Wilson. It is not his burden to establish either that he is factually innocent or that the jury necessarily would have acquitted him had it known of the suppressed evidence. Rather, the question is whether the favorable evidence could reasonably be taken to put the whole case in such a different light as to undermine confidence in the verdict. Julie's daughter and Lester Williams were of paramount importance to the prosecution's case and the outcome of trial depended to a very large extent on their credibility and the reliability of their testimony. We do know that if the petitioner were alive, he would be entitled to a new trial to determine if the presumption of innocence would prevail in the face of all the evidence, including that which was not disclosed. We also know that if petitioner did not commit this most horrible murder, then someone else did, who remains free of the consequences of his crime. Obviously, this is the court ruling that Oscar should have had, but never did. Soderston's case benefited from huge changes in the case law regarding Brady violations, witness identifications tainted by law enforcement, threatening interview tactics, and the production of all recorded statements. As we have said many, many times, if either of the hearings on the True Blood and Gerber tapes had been held after 1990, Oscar would have won a new trial. However, once he lost those appeals, he was barred from raising the issue again. In addition to those two missing tapes, TCSO refused to produce the tape of Byrd's illegal questioning of Oscar on the night of his arrest, Carter's second interview, and the Passione interview. Those are the ones we know about. We assume that there are many more that were more carefully hidden. The court talked a lot there about the state's duty to disclose evidence that impeaches the statements and testimony of key witnesses. Soderston's jury should have known about the daughter's prior identification of Mark Dare and the coaching to pick Soderston by ADA Couillard, Prosecutor Klein, and DA Investigator Johnson. 
they should have heard that she was still implicating Dare in the weeks leading up to the trial. Although she appeared reliable in court, it was a carefully staged play that covered up huge inconsistencies. The same is true with Oscar's case. The jury should have known that Laverne Lamb was close family with Don Lee and the Scroggins. They should have heard that the Moscoros were employed by Donna's grandparents. Beth Brumley gave so many prior inconsistent statements that the judge should have barred her testimony as unreliable and irrelevant, or the jury should have heard all of the different times and places she originally gave for the incident. Was it okay that Sheriff Wiley lied to the court about showing Oscar's photo to Gloria Moscoro? No. What about Woodlake PD officer Diaz's report where he wrote, Miss Brumley told me that the man was the same one she saw in a newspaper, meaning the suspect that was arrested for the murder of Donna Richmond in Exeter. The jury might have had a better understanding of how she picked out Oscar's photo from an overly suggestive lineup Diaz showed her a few days later. What about the close relationship between the Richmonds and Bob Bird or Danny Boland? These aren't minor points. They show inconsistencies and biases that make their statements less believable and or reliable. Reading the court's statements about the threats that Gomes and Woods made to coerce the statement from Williams gives us the chills. It's right there in black and white. Law enforcement's threat of the death penalty was an improper interrogation. This is exactly what happened with Rick Carter. He, like Williams, gave two statements that completely exonerated the defendant from any possible involvement in the homicide. Then, they were each arrested, charged with aggravated first-degree murder and attempted rape, and then threatened with the death penalty. Carter and Williams then changed their stories to implicate the defendants. All charges against them were dropped, and they were given full immunity in exchange for their carefully coached testimony. Either the judge should have barred those change statements as coerced and unreliable, or the jury should have heard the full tapes so they could understand the pressure and coaching that occurred in the interview rooms. We know that D.A. Ward and A.D.A. Alavesos like to brush off these issues as technicalities. Oscar got a fair trial and all of his appeals, and we aren't going to second-guess those, blah, 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 on endless repeat. You can hear the court for yourself. When law enforcement and DAs hide inconsistent witness statements, show suspect photos to witnesses, coerce false statements under threat of wrongful prosecution, and hide exculpatory recordings, that is not fair and should never be tolerated in a just society. What would the justices have said about DA Powell and ADA Coolyard hiding the exculpatory ABO testing? What about TCSO Brian Johnson's intentional destruction of the rape kit and Coolyard's cover-up? We know what they would say, if Oscar were alive to ask them. Here's your monthly reminder that DA Ward and ADA Alavesos have also violated PC-141C multiple times, and they have the son of a former deputy to DA Powell protecting them at the Attorney General's office. They don't even try to hide their lies. Their tactic is to tell them so boldly and forcefully that nobody believes they could be lying. They went so far as to state that there was no blood typing done on Blake's sample. They put that right in their report. They both know it's a lie. Cuillard knows it's a lie. And Powell knew it 
during the trial. They don't care. They've gotten away with this behavior for their entire careers, and they seem to think that they're above the law. Ward and Elevesos have repeatedly told multiple journalists that the case evidence wasn't intentionally destroyed. It was just a rumor or gossip. When confronted with the documents, ADA Elevesos said it wasn't a crime. When he was told it was a crime, his response was basically, so what? They used their report to continue to violate Oscar's due process rights and relied on evidence that they intentionally destroyed and is not available for testing and impeachment. They don't care about the truth because nobody in power will make them testify under oath. We have to believe that the pendulum of justice will eventually swing back and hit them where it hurts. The facts generally went out in the end. When we started the podcast, we had no real goal in mind. VPD Sergeant Vaughn had tried to get Visalia PD, TCSO, Sacramento Sheriff's Office to investigate our information. Additionally, Orange County Investigator Larry Poole had reached out to his county's detectives and the AAR task force. Nobody wanted to hear about Exeter, the Vasilia Ransacker, Jennifer Armour, or a wrongful conviction in Donna's case. We wanted the same thing then that we want now, to document these cases, to create a record. We know that there will never be another criminal charge filed against Joe D'Angelo. That's on the DAs who gave him a deal that didn't require him to take full responsibility for all of his crimes. That doesn't mean there will never be answers, so we'll just keep asking the questions. Could D'Angelo have been stopped in 1974 after Jennifer Armour's murder? In 1975 with Donna? How about if Brian Johnson had told the truth during the trial or refused to destroy the evidence in 1977? What if Sacramento sheriffs had listened to Vaughn and McGowan in 1977 or 78? Could Chief Willock or Sacramento sheriffs have stopped him after the arrest in 1979? What about if Donahue had lived and told the truth about Gerber and Trueblood at the appeal hearing in 1981? Could Janelle Cruz have been saved if Coolyard had told the truth about the destroyed evidence and ABO typing back in 1985? Bob Bird clearly knew that Oscar was innocent when he destroyed the evidence, and likely from the moment he heard the Trueblood tape in June of 1976. He worked with and was neighbors with D'Angelo for three years, he knew exactly when he moved to Auburn. Without Oscar walking out of prison or the possibility of a big reveal DNA exoneration, what does justice look like here? The answer is a real conviction integrity review for actual innocence resulting in a court hearing and new witness testimony under oath. The one thing D.A. Ward fears most in this case. 